Thanks for tuning in to Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. It's been a busy two weeks around here. COVID-19 has been found in four dorms at UVA and Charlottesville is getting a new city manager. We discuss those developments with Jesse Higgins of Charlottesville tomorrow. Plus, we sit down with the folks at Live Arts to talk about their upcoming entirely virtual season of community theater. But first, we talk to activists as they mark the removal of the Confederate Johnny Reb statue in front of the Albemarle County Courthouse in downtown Charlottesville. You know, if you're not awake now, you're not asleep, you're in a coma. All right, we are back at the Johnny Reb Takedown special broadcast, and I have an interview right now. Would you mind introducing yourself? Uh, Don Gathers. What brought you here today? A moment of pleasure and reflection, uh, a moment of uh, redemption and reconciliation. And as you saw the plaque being carried away, what was kind of going through your mind, that first step of taking it down? Uh, The first thought was about our ancestors and the pain and suffering that... uh, this, this symbolizes uh, for them. But it's also a moment in time where uh, we, we, we're in a momentous moment where um, we're finally realizing the reality of uh, what the history of this country represents and um, that these things, these symbols of hatred really bear no relevance in today's modern day society. Next and very quickly, I hope that we can get rid of Stoney and little Bobby Lee down the street. And don't stop there. We also need to remove the George Rogers Clark statue. We need to remove the Sacagawea statue. So this is a, a, a progressive moment, but there's still five in this, in this immediate community that need to come down immediately right after. Right now, just a quick update on the statue. It looks like they are almost ready to move it. But we're going to turn back to Jelaine. Hi, I'm Jelaine Schmidt. I'm a professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia, and I'm a community organizer here in Charlottesville. Four years ago, uh, in 2016, when the Blue Ribbon Commission on uh, Race, Memorials, and Public Places was holding their hearings, I started going to those. Um, Just started getting involved with community members who are interested in having a different landscape here. Just for those of you who may have heard some cheers, the forklift is moving towards the statue. Jelaine, what are you feeling right now as you see this getting closer and closer to happening? I feel like a kid on Christmas. Part of what's happening is that the city and county are engaging in a full renovation uh, project of the court square here, including thinking about what memorialization will look here. And so we're hoping to build up the slave auction block site into a more respectful and developed uh, memorial there. And then also to memorialize John Henry James, the man who was lynched here, that'll be coming. So there's a lot of wholesale changes that are going to be coming up here in terms of our landscape here in Charlottesville, much like at the university where we have the memorial to enslaved laborers now, there's just been a lot more thought about how to be inclusive and how to narrate our histories in ways that um, are uh, more life-sustaining and inclusive. Here I have Ziana Bryant with me. She's a Charlottesville community member and student at UVA. I wrote the original petition to take down the Lee statue, which is like right down the street um, in 2016. And so this is the result of the work of a lot of black women, Siri Russell, Jelaine Schmidt, Dr. Douglas. 
and also just a host of other people. So I'm really excited to see that it's coming down today. It should have been down a long time ago. But of course, this is only one step in the process of equity and, you know, redistributing resources and, you know, tearing down systems. And you mentioned that this is this is just one step. I know you're a student at UVA. What would you say to a peer that would be satisfied with stopping here or stopping with the event that we had today? When you go out to do something, you never do it halfway. And I think the university is often satisfied with doing things halfway. And so I, to my peers and to the, to the faculty who are out here today, I encourage you to continue to push for more. You know, the BOV yesterday made some monumental decisions with wanting to remove the Clark statue. Um, but I ask you, what about the Whispering Wall? We can't rededicate our way. We can't recontextualize our way around racism. Um, and so until we, it's all or nothing, really, until we decide to take down all these odes and shrines to, to white supremacy, then we're still um, giving into the issue. We're still feeding the problem. And so simply I say, no platform for white supremacy anywhere, period. Right here with me is Andrea Douglas. She runs the Jefferson School. So from an educational perspective, as someone who is very intimately involved, what does this day mean? For me, watching this statue come down, um, it's somewhat bittersweet. I had hoped that we would go the full mile and not just take it down, but really sort of remove it from our public spaces. That's not going to happen. It's going to go to a battlefield where it's believed that it will be contextualized in an appropriate way. I don't think it can be by the very nature of what it is. The mm -hmm. symbols that are, are, are coming with it are symbols that are very specific to an ideology that is about ownership. This is about control. This is about power. And I think that we feel that at least we have moved a body of people to understand that a body of people who did not quite understand that to the, in, in, in the past. Um, the Board of Supervisors in making their decision clearly understood that this was an inappropriate object in its place, mm. but I'm not quite sure they went as far as saying it's an inappropriate object, period. There's a whole group of young people who understand what this is and understand why this thing is a problem. And I think if you're asking me about education, that's where I feel most, um, I don't know the word, I feel good about it because I think that it's going to take every single one of us to be speaking to every single one of us in every single voice that we have to make sure that what is on that object is understood, that it's not just about bronze and stone, it's about ideology. In the front of that object is religion. On the back of that object is the state. It stands on front, in front of the, our jurisprudence um, discussions, right? This is wrong in every single way, and I think that that's what education means to me. That segment was hosted by Ella Tench. In our next segment, we catch up with Charlottesville Tomorrow. We're joined today by Jesse Higgins, lead reporter at Charlottesville Tomorrow. Let's start with one of the big breaking news items. There is a potential COVID-19 outbreak in one of the UVA freshman dorms. How did they discover this cluster of cases? 
the university announced that there were a cluster of cases in Balls Doby dormitory on Wednesday evening after they found uh, traces of COVID-19 in the wastewater testing that they're doing. The students, however, said that they kind of got an inkling that something was happening on Monday. Several of the students in one of the floors all kind of became sick around the same time. And uh, this this dorm is pretty close-knit, so everybody knew right away. The first positive COVID test came back on Tuesday, and by Wednesday there were five. So the university just reacted super fast, locked everything down, told everyone there to quarantine, and sent someone to test every last person there. So those test results came back either last night or this morning. Uh, they made the announcement that there were 10 additional positive cases from that, and the health department is now doing contact tracing, investigating who all of those students may have had close contact with in the last couple of days to try to contain this while we can. When you say quarantining the students who test positive, um, is that in their room, in the building? Do they move them somewhere? What does quarantine mean to UVA? So when you have a positive COVID case, a confirmed COVID case, the student is moved to what they call isolation. Now, I don't think that the rooms or the setup are any different, but in, in isolation, the student has their own room, their own private bathroom facility where they can literally just be separated from everyone else. And they stay there until, I believe it's until they have two negative COVID tests, and then they're allowed to return to the student body. Quarantine, though, is a little different. Again, the student is separated in a private room, and they have a a private bathroom facility so that they're not going to be in close contact with anyone. But a quarantine situation is where you have a student that doesn't necessarily have a positive test, but has been in close contact with someone who has And close contact is defined as generally spending 15 minutes, at least 15 minutes, within six feet of someone who has had the virus. And so with both quarantine and isolation, is this like a they don't leave their room, meals are delivered kind of situation? How strict is it? As I understand it, isolation means your meals are delivered and uh, you, you have no contact with anyone. You stay in your room until you're not sick anymore. Quarantine is, I think, a, a similar situation where, again, meals are delivered. You don't, you don't contact anybody. In the case of the Balls Doby dorm, because they were locking down an entire dorm while they did prevalence testing, it was a little less strict, so the students were in their rooms with their roommates. They were asked to wear masks all the time and they were allowed to leave the dorm to go to the bathroom. There's shared bathroom facilities. There's no way around that. And they could also leave to go pick up food, although the the food was delivered to a specific place where only they went to pick it up. So it, it was a little bit different than, you know, a, a quarantine or isolation situation where you have a, a positive case or a, or a suspected case. You reported that UVA is reluctant to disclose what its threshold for shutting down is. Why is that? 
I can only speculate. You'd really have to ask them to know for sure. From the experts that I have spoken to elsewhere in the state and in the country, uh, universities everywhere tend to be pretty reticent to talk about their thresholds for shutting down. The reason is then once they announce that, the public will hold them to it and they're learning as they go. So that number can change pretty rapidly and pretty dramatically based on new information. So when universities are open, they they seem to be making decisions based on the information that they have at the time, adjusting those decisions and not really letting the general public in on that decision-making process. How is UVA disclosing case numbers and information about the spread of COVID-19 on campus? So what the UVA has done is put up a new tab on their website called their COVID tracker, where every day they report the number of positive cases among students and among faculty and staff. The, those cases are just the positive cases from UVA facilities and UVA student health. So if a student, say, goes to uh, or an urgent care or a CVS for a test, um, that number wouldn't be reflected in their tracker. The health department just signed a memorandum of understanding with the university to conduct their COVID contact tracing and investigations. Mm. They're working pretty pretty hard to keep track and keep contained the COVID spread among the students. I, I was talking to one of their um, epidemiologists yesterday, and uh, she said that you know things are going well considering, and that the communication between them and the university is really strong. One of the issues that she's seeing, though, is that students, far more so than other community members of different age groups are highly, highly social. So even if you have a student that's following all of the rules and wearing their mask and not gathering in groups more than 15, a group of 15 is still a lot of people. And with these students, especially the more social ones, she's seen that you can have one student go to different gatherings every night or every couple of nights. So within a few days period, that one student could potentially be in close contact with a lot of people. That makes the, the spread much larger, much, much greater than your average community member. I wasn't exaggerating about this being a breaking news story. Right after I got off the phone with Jesse, the Cavalier Daily reported that COVID-19 had turned up in the wastewater of three additional dorms. As students from Balls Dobie are moved into their isolation and quarantine homes, all residents of Lefevre, Eccles, and Kellogg will be tested this Friday afternoon, September 18th. Results from those tests will be available in one to two days. In the meantime, over 500 first-year students will be locked down in their dorms, only allowed to leave their rooms for food and to use the shared hall bathroom. All right, back to Jesse. 
So switching to another big local story, a week ago, the Charlottesville city manager resigned. Can you tell us a little bit about Teron Richardson and his tenure? Teron Richardson um, took over the job of city manager in May 2019. He was the final selection from a group of 37 candidates. And the city council went through a, a pretty rigorous application process I was not here, but I believe one of his final interviews was um, on a stage with other candidates in front of a crowd to to allow, they, they went above and beyond to bring the public in on this process and to find the right, the right fit for the job. So he took over that role in May of 2019, and he resigned um, a week ago, September 11th. Can you remind us a little bit about what the role of the city manager is? Yeah, so the city manager is basically the, uh, I guess, the the director, the uh, executor of the city. So he's the person who is the boss of all of the department heads, the chief of police, the director of public works. Um, he, he's in charge of every department in the city. What reasons did Mr. Richardson give for stepping down? So he was pretty succinct in his explanations. He didn't say much. Um, the one thing he did say was that it was personal reasons. And when pressed, he talked about how the this this year in particular the pandemic followed by the death of George Floyd and the ensuing protests uh, both nationally and locally were just um, just a lot to cope with and that during these last few months he has been working nonstop he said hours and hours and that it all just took a toll on him personally and that he needed to take a moment to take care of himself. What was really interesting after Teron Richardson spoke about his reasons for leaving, our mayor, Nakia Walker, had kind of a, a moment of real candor. She hinted that the working environment within the city was rather unhealthy. And I'm actually gonna read the quote that she said. Um, she said, there are probably days where we're all like, how long can we do this? Hopefully, at some point, there will be more trust within the community relationships, and there will be a healthier spirit within our internal workings, and that it will come together, and that we'll have a healthier environment. It sounds like the city might be a, a difficult place to work right now. There has been a pretty high rate of turnover among city employees, um, notably top-level city employees in the last couple of years. Um, and Tehran is not the first city manager uh, to leave before his contract had ended or to leave in a very short period of time. When is his last day and who will take over in the meantime? He's going to be leaving on September 30th. And at that point, our city attorney, John Blair, will be taking over for him as the interim city manager. The city council is going to have to decide how it will conduct a search for a new city manager. 
Uh, they have said they'll probably do something similar to what they did when they selected Tehran and hire a consulting firm and have a very public process. That can take a long time. And one of the things that our mayor, Nakia Walker, said uh, when Tehran announced he was leaving was that she was concerned that the high turnover rate and that some of the other issues that were obviously present in the city would make it harder to attract um, a, a good candidate for the position. Jesse Higgins is the lead reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center. During these challenging times, the Southern Environmental Law Center is remaining strong and resolute in protecting the fundamental right to clean air and clean water and a healthy environment for all. In our next segment, we sit down with Live Arts to talk about their upcoming season and forging art and community in a time of crisis and isolation. My name is Ann Hunter, and I am the executive director of Live Arts as of February, about six weeks before COVID shut us down. And I'm Jeremy Duncan Pape. I'm the interim artistic director at Live Arts. This is our 30th anniversary season, though we're calling it the reimagined season because we're operating in COVID. We do, uh, we're located in downtown Charlottesville on Water Street, uh, right off of the mall. Live Arts has produced a vast and varied type of theater over the years. We have produced everything from Shakespeare to brand new original works by community members. Even still in our 30th year, we we strive to be scrappy and to be creative and to be a little outside of the box. One important thing to note is that we are volunteer powered. Mm. So we have 1,200 volunteers that help us put on these productions. And we have a year-round education program with camps and workshops for adults and for for youth that has really come into its own as a freestanding area for us. There's a lot of different formats in this season. Can you kind of talk through some of the different ones that y'all are playing with? So this is the this is kind of the way I think about it. Is I think that there are, there are five kind of styles that we're doing. Five five things that we're really doing. So the first Friday of every month, we have these these studio visits. They're inspired by the the, the Charlottesville First Fridays efforts have been going on forever. And our, our brilliant, wonderful box office manager, Daryl, who curates Live Arts' lobby gallery, is going to be sitting and visiting with some of his artist friends every first Friday. The second Friday of every month, we're going to be mounting radio plays but the real fun focus on the radio plays is twofold. It's one, that it's, a, it's an opportunity to tell stories that either we know really well or have never been told before in a different kind of a way. Um, but also we get to focus on Foley sounds. And for, for those of you in the audience who don't know what a Foley sound is, a Foley sound is um, a, a specific style of making sound effects. So, for example, in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, when you see King Arthur and his his surf behind him clapping the coconuts together. That's a Foley sound effect. Our third Fridays of every month, we'll be reapproaching one of Live Arts's classic efforts um, of the coffee houses. So we've reimagined it slightly, and it'll be uh, sort of a two-part event. The first portion of the event are these 
It's a, a showcase of local artists. And uh, we'll pass the hat and everybody will get the chance to tip them. Um, and then we will go into a, a not private, but not live stream. So it's sort of a social hour punctuated by performances. And the opening night this Friday is hosted by Shelby Marie Edwards, who is a, a local actor, playwright, and also on our staff uh, running our development program. And then the fourth Friday of, of every month is, we're calling it Foundry Fridays. And those are sort of a skill-building, um, fun maker time. So our, uh, our interim technical director, Annie Temming, is also a local artist um, known for her, her wearable sculptures and her luminescent personality. Um, and she will be sort of the first student with local makers and artisans who, who it's sort of an educational space where you come in and you get to learn a craft. And so then our sort of fifth mode of producing, if you will, are these um, more full-length shows. We have a couple of them coming right up on top of us. So at the end of this month, we'll be doing Locally Sourced, um, which is a series of, of one acts and monologues by local playwrights. And that's, uh, it's, it's a foray into something that's maybe a little bit more recognizable to us all as, as theater and then following that will be uh, Lost Home, Win Home, again by Shelby Marie Edwards. And that is uh, her reflection on the events of August 11, 12. Um, we're really fortunate that, um, that she's going to be doing that with us. She's performed that out in Chicago. I think she had a run in New York at a festival as well. It's really fantastic piece of work. Um, and then we have a number of other full-length plays that we'll be approaching throughout the year. How did you all choose those works to perform? Um thinking about, you know, everything going on and, and this place that we live into. So the sort of featured performances, so Shelby, for example, um, her play, it feels very timely. And uh, so we have some other smaller pieces like that that we're talking about doing that are completely locally generated new works, uh, ideally with a local focus as well. Um, for, the, for the extant full lengths, it often comes to theme, um, so Marat Saad, for example, is um, a play that is based around the question of how does one best affect change in a society and in a system? And is it, um, is it best first by changing oneself or by changing the system? And so that feels extraordinarily timely. Re relevance and, is the theme here. Does mm -hmm. it answer that question? Because I'd like to know. <laughs> Good art doesn't answer questions. <laughs> it poses <laughs> you know, questions. I saw that eye roll. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in, in all seriousness, it, 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 it is a forum for a conversation and it is a forum for, for, for trying. The children and the aliens will be running in repertory with each other. So they're really two plays that are actively in conversation with each other, even though the writers didn't do that intentionally um, or, or specifically. Um, uh, so the, the children is um, three, uh, three folks um, in their 60s um, who are dealing with an environmental collapse. Um, that they actually, the three of them were actually directly responsible for in some ways um, because it's a nuclear uh, meltdown. And so they're trying to, trying to cope with survival in this space. And the aliens is dealing with a different kind of a meltdown and crisis, but really the one of ennui um, of uh, three people who are around the age of 20. 
these these two plays that are dealing with very different types of crises, um, but there's a really nice symmetry to them. And a generational contrast mm-hmm. to how they approach that. Mm-hmm. I think when I first heard you describe that, you said um, the children uh, featured three old women, and they're in their early 60s, and so am I. So, three so, boomers. Oh, three boomers. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, nice recovery there. <laughs> <laughs> You've cleaned that up some, Jeremy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm working on my pitch language. <laughs> Can you all yeah. tell me the story of like one of the challenges that you encountered in moving a work from the stage to digital platforms and how you all kind of figured it out? Um, well, one only, of the, only one, Jeremy. There, yeah, only there. one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, you know, one of the big challenges is equity. And uh, not everybody has the same access to the same technology or the same internet speed even. Um, and that's a, that's a, that is a challenge that we're, we're dealing with every single engagement that we do with our volunteers. So, uh, you know, we could say, you know, say to somebody, hey, we want you to be involved. Say, I can't be involved because I don't have a great camera. So we can either bring them into our space in a really controlled, contained way and provide them a good Internet connection or hardware that is up to the task. Access is a is a consistent challenge that um, we've been decently successful with so far, but it's something that. We, there's still definitely room for for improvement on. Do you all expect this crisis to change theater? And if so, in what ways? Theater has been around for thousands and thousands of years. Um, theater, live performance, intentional um, performance has has existed in literally every society that has ever graced our planet, and. Um, it's been through way worse than this. And so um, I think that, that yes, theater will change because of this. Um, but I think that's because theater is an adaptable, beautiful monster that changes because of everything that happens. Um, it's, a living, it's a living thing. <laughs> Ever evolving. Mm-hmm. Can you all take us back to that first weekend of March? What was it like for you all when social distancing for COVID-19 mm. first started? Jeremy is making a terrible face right now for those Sorry, in the audience who can't see. <laughs> that was Jeremy's first play that you directed as artistic director at Live Arts. Yeah. And we had to shut it down halfway through it. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about that, Jeremy? Sure. Um, I've got tissues handy. <laughs> yeah, well, it was it was hard, you know. So the act of directing is 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 very often a year long process or more. And so I had known that I would be directing this play since April of uh, 2019, and had been working on it since then. Um, it was hard. It was a hard decision to make. Uh, Anne and I. It was our first hard decision that we made together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, economically. COVID hit us pretty hard. We lost about $410,000 in earned income because of the cancellation of shows, um, summer camps. We also looked beyond the financials and said, you know, we have an important part as an organization that whose mission it is to forge theater and community. And so this was Jeremy's brainchild. We launched a 
30 plays in 30 days theater retrospective in honor of our 30th anniversary year. You know, 30 years is is significant for any business. Um, 30 years for a community theater is... Monumental. It's monumental. (laughs) And so we got to take the opportunity to kind of walk this path of history of 30 years of producing plays, of creating work. And we got to talk with dozens and dozens of uh, our sort of extended community. And so it was, it was really lovely. We had, I think, 13,000. 13,100 people view it. Yeah. You know, our theater space, our big theater space is only 165 people mm-hmm. capacity. And it was, it was lovely because it also, it also got, it gave us the opportunity to touch our roots again. And uh, our roots being that as a community theater, you know, very often the community theaters uh, just put up extant works and they'll, they'll put up the classics, you know, very familiar theater pieces, very familiar musicals, very f- things that are comfortable. Live arts has not done that um, over the course of its history. Live arts has very often been more grounded in supporting the artists of the community and giving opportunity um, to experiment and you know, there's that phrase around the freedom to freedom to succeed through failure um, and that kind of thing. And just making it a space where it's it, it is OK to get something wrong because you were trying something really crazy. Beautiful. Anything else you all want to mention before we wrap up? So if you are intrigued by what we talked about with the season that Jeremy has has uh, described, you can be part of it by purchasing a season pass. Uh, season pass, you can get access to all of that anchor programming, the Friday night programming, the the plays by Shelby and and locally sourced for $150. Or you can buy a bonus pass and get, also get the four full-length plays as part of it. Um, people are, are buying it because they want to support live arts. They want to support our staff. Uh, the volunteers, they want Charlottesville to recover, all kinds of reasons for investing in a season pass and helping the organization thrive through this very challenging time. Thank you all so much for talking to us. I really appreciate it. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our assistant producer is Jiho Kim. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Marin Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. <laughs> <laughs>